Hello, welcome to episode 56 of Scuttlebutt. I am Nick. I am here with William. Howdy. And today we have Andy Hesterman and Rob Inati on the show with us today to talk about Radio Man. And I have the whole cover title here. 25 years in the Marine Corps from Desert Storm to Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, so that has been available since March, and everybody needs to check it out, if not just because we're about to talk about it, but because I've never seen a book that has five stars and that many people haven't reviewed it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But we're going to yeah, get more doing, into the details here. doing well on Amazon so far. Yeah, that so. is excellent. That is so good to hear. Uh, but you guys' story is kind of intertwined. Uh, is kind of intertwined. So before I, like, hand off to William here... Um, you guys want to give us a uh, little rundown about how we, uh, the journey we've been on to lead you here to Scuttlebutt today? <laughs> and... Sure. <laughs> it, 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 tell me if I'm starting the wrong point here, but it really starts back in high school. So yeah. Rob and I are buddies from high school. Grew up in an area of California called Palo Alto. Um, we'll just say not a lot of Marines come from Palo Alto. That's <laughs> That's probably the best way to... <laughs> Yeah, it's more that. of a it's a Silicon Valley kind of startupy type play. Less so that back then than it is today, but uh, still, yeah, not yeah. a hotbed for Marines. So <laughs> I didn't exactly fit in all that well. Um, but anyway, the point being, Rob and I have been buddies since high school. Um, to surprise and chagrin of some family and friends, I joined the Marine Corps after one quarter of uh, high of, of uh, community college. So all of a sudden, I'm off doing Marine Corps stuff, and Rob is at Stanford doing college stuff, and we're kind of already <laughs> on these opposite ends of the spectrum. But yeah. we're buds. We're staying in touch. When I'm back in town, uh, we get together, um, and this, this just keeps evolving. Desert Storm happens. And he becomes my confident that, like, the, the stories you don't tell your family about a deployment, about a war, about a conflict, Rob was, was my guy. Um, you know, the, the stories are a little bit dark that, that you, you need to vent to. Me and Rob go down to Old Pros, have a couple beers, tell stories. Anyway, that continues on for years. Uh, it got less as it, as it goes. Um, then we reconnected heavily you know, we kind of lost touch for a couple years at a time, retouch base. Hey, where are you at now? He's sending me care package every time I deploy. Uh, there's whole stories about that. I'm getting off point again. <laughs> <laughs> so a very good mutual friend of ours from high school got cancer uh, towards the end of my career. So, you know, about 25 years. And we really reconnected heavily over that. Um, we met up in New York to go see him before he passed. And that's kind of when Rob first admitted to me what he had been thinking all along of documenting what I had been telling him. So I didn't realize that Rob had been writing all this down. All this <laughs> telling Not him. that formally, but, uh, but yeah. You know, I mean, Andy, you know, and I think the, 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 it really first came into my brain uh right after the gulf war again at that bar old pro the stories he told me which didn't line up with the stuff we saw on cnn it didn't line up with what you read in the new york times or where have you um and i was just you know fascinated by it and i always felt like this needs to be put down on paper at some point 
Um, and of course, you can't work with someone in while you can't really talk to someone in the service while they're still in the service. And at that point, I didn't know Andy was going to be in the Marines for another 20 years. Uh, but um, yeah, so that time finally came in 2013 after Andy uh, retired. And uh, by then, Andy had gone from being a, you know, a grunt in a kind of low tech post Vietnam uh, military to an officer in a high tech post 9-11 military. So and that's the other thing that makes this book unique. I think is it spans all, all, quite a bit of time, conflicts, technologies, and going from a young man to a you know an officer. So, and so you were uh, were you were, sorry I'm jumping. Uh, were you writing as you were going? No, no. So we started writing in twenty late twenty thirteen. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of like basically mental notes. I guess put it. I mean, um, yeah. So we. Andy flew out to Seattle and we whiteboarded the whole thing. Um, and then we just started, we kind of chunked it up. We still didn't know. We kind of were like, let's just write through it, see what there is, and then, um, uh, you know, modify it as necessary from there. But we just kind of chunked it up and just started hitting it in a chronological order and it took us four years to write through the whole thing and edit it. All right. Now, since the book is pretty much all Andy, um, so what were you... Uh... Were you doing a lot of writing uh, in the intervening time since you left Stanford, or was this? Just I was. I've been like kind of a failed fiction writer. You know, I was writing short <laughs> stories. I had a Hollywood agent for a while. I was you know trying to sell um, uh, screenplays. I have some novels that I wrote. Um, but so I was writing, you know, and then I got caught up in trying to raise a family and make money. So I'm writing a lot professionally. So I've always been writing, whether it's professionally or trying to make it in the fiction world. But uh, well, you did the Iowa workshop. Yeah, I did the Iowa, Iowa State workshop, kind of which is deal. yeah, it's kind of a big deal MFA kind of thing. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm uh, trained as a writer. I'll put it that way. So and uh, I read a fair amount less so now than I used to, but um, very interested in military uh, writing and history as well. Yeah, trained in Ames. <laughs> Ames, uh, Iowa City. Uh, oh, Iowa City. Yeah, yeah. Iowa right. City is where uh, University of Iowa is. So, yeah. Um, Okay. Oh, so I'm you sorry. said Iowa I said State, so I was thinking I, that was my fault. All right. <laughs> so, Rob, you you mentioned uh, earlier when we were talking that you uh, were was sort of I guess confused by the official narrative versus what uh, Andrew was telling you. Mm -hmm. What was that conflict? And then Andrew, once he finishes, uh, could you just uh, I can, can I get your thoughts on that as well, like between your experiences versus the official narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think. The, one of the main things is that Andy did a fair amount before the actual quote unquote official ground war kicked off. And before the official ground war kicked off, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the impression then was like we weren't doing anything and we were just sitting there. <laughs> Whereas Andy was doing quite a bit of stuff. Um, and then um, I think just the more visceral, personal nature of what Andy encountered versus, again, what we saw on CNN, which was a lot of rockets being shot around and stuff like that, kind of disconnected from the kind of human element. Um, so Andy kind of brought the kind of, when he talked, telling me about it would bring like the, the kind of human element. Um, you know, those of us who had good friends in the military, I think we were mostly worried that our friends were going to get gassed when they went over there. We weren't really worried about losing that war, per se, but like there is a, there was a strong fear around the gas, I think. Um, 
in a lot well, of we concern. Were, we were expecting high casualties. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a difference between, well, there was, there was some inaccuracies in our intel reporting. Yeah. You know, we were like, the, the obstacle belt was expected to be much worse than it was between Kuwait and, and uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. So, um, now, but in you, the uh, Andy was in sorry. the Kafji thing, you know, and that wasn't, I don't think that was very well documented in the media that I recall uh, at that time. I could be wrong. This yeah. Is, well, to, to kind of uh, put a little more perspective on what Rob was saying there, I was with Anglico. Um, so we were doing forward observation strikes for the the Eastern Coalition. So I wasn't with Marines or Army units. I was on the coast with the Saudi, Kuwaiti, uh, Moroccan coalition, um, and as part of the mission for Anglico from the Marine Corps. And we're doing as soon as the air war kicked off, we were up on the border. Yeah. Looking for targets. So all that air war where most of the Marine and Army units were sitting in defensive positions to the south, were patrolling up to the, the border every night looking for targets to call aircraft on. So we were we were actively engaged um, while everyone else has reported, oh, it's just airstrikes and um, T-lams and artillery and, mm -hmm. and such. And it really wasn't man-to-man -man engagement, uh, where we were kind of, you know, not like SEALs or any of that, you know, I'm not, not trying to claim, claim anything there, but, but we were spotting targets and going. And keep in mind that this was the first time, well, the, this was a very significant difference for Desert Storm was the advent of CNN. I mean, uh, we didn't realize it out there. <laughs> Everybody at home is watching CNN 24-7. Mm -hmm. And and asking us via, you know, it's not email or anything yet, so it's still letters and um, occasional phone calls. But everybody at home knows stuff that we don't know. And, and we're trying to figure out how to watch CNN to figure out. Uh, so it, it was a, a dynamic change between what the the public back home knows about what you're doing. And so mm -hmm. it was it was easy. If it's only by perspective, it was easy for that not to line up. Um you know, CNN is reporting big, big blue arrows. And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, squad movement level stuff. And so, of course, it, it sounds like it's different, even if it was the same thing. But in a lot of cases, it wasn't because CNN is reporting, you know, 7th Army, uh, Task Force Ripper, you know, all the big units. And I'm over here with the, the coalition mm -hmm. guys. Um, and that, they didn't get reported on that much, uh, particularly in the U.S. So... Yeah. What was the turnaround time? So you were in the reserves, right? Uh, so what was the turnaround Correct. time between, uh, I guess, just training on the weekends to all of a sudden uh, being with <laughs> yeah. the with the Anglico coalition? Like that's not it's not a story we hear very often. No, and the reserve <laughs> unit for Anglico is completely different than the rest of my reserve experience. Um, so for just a quick synopsis on that, I spent three years at a uh, kind of a standard reserve regiment, uh, infantry regiment, but I was a communications guy for the headquarters. That was fairly typical. Two weeks in the summer, you know, one week in a month, we go to the field. 
uh, every other week, uh, every other weekend, rather, every other drill, um, you know, three days, you go out Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, come back Sunday night, clean up and go back to school or your job the next morning. Very, very typical. Whereas the Anglico, and the same is true of the reserve force recon uh, reserve units are, are completely different. I joined them about six months uh, before Desert Storm started building up. And it was because I transferred schools and I moved. And that was something I'd always wanted to do. Um, well, I wanted to go to jump school. <laughs> and <Yeah>. Anglico, <laughs> Anglico was a way to get there. Uh, getting a jump school slot in the Marine Corps is quite challenging, particularly in the reserves. Uh, so anyway, uh, Anglico is completely different. And the schedule changes, the training changes. You go to more schools. You do more... You do more active duty time as a reservist uh, with with Anglico or or the force guys. Um, and then, of course, there was activate and then go into uh, uh, some more touch up training. We actually got attached to second Anglico in uh, North Carolina in prep to go over to uh, to Saudi Arabia. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, kind of does. Uh, yeah. But were you, uh, as part of the reserve part, I guess, uh, being kind of, I, I don't know how to say this, uh, prepared culturally to work with those uh, with those folks? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so it is dimmed in my memory. Keep in mind, we're talking about, is that 30 years ago? 30 now? years. Uh, yeah. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, so, long time ago, but yes, and... I have gone through multiple pre-deployment training cycles, you know, since then, several times. Uh, so they, they do kind of blur together. But yes, we did uh, some very, very basic language training, some cultural training, um, history of the area. And, uh, you know, back then, it wasn't the history that we got, you know, preparing to go back to Iraq for OIF. And of course, Afghanistan also OEF. Um, we got a little heavier into the history, but that part of the world thinks a little bit different, and that's no joke. Every, everybody talks about it, but it, it's a different, different perspective, different way of thinking. We, we, you know, Western versus Eastern. Um, so we we did a, a ton of training. We also had a ton of uh, ROE, uh, you know, rules of engagement proportionality, you know, all, all that stuff was starting then. Not, it, it's nothing compared to what we did for OIF, OEF. Uh, but yes, a ton of extra training. Our docs, our, our corpsmen were awesome. They were thrown in hip pocket classes between every other class. Uh, for Marines, when you, when you hear a hip pocket class, that every every Marine knows exactly what you're talking about. But that's anybody that has any kind of position or authority or subject matter expertise keeps in their pocket, figuratively, a ready-to-go class so that when your platoon, your squad, your unit is got a 15-minute wait before their turn at chow hall or to get on the plane or whatever, you bust out a class and you teach them something to make – make use of that time sitting there. And everybody was fantastic. Uh, so we're getting medical, we're getting, you know, touch up stuff on aircraft capabilities and threat. We're, we're paranoid about the fact that 
both the good guys and the bad guys all had the same Russian vehicles. You know, BMPs, BRDMs, and all the stuff we had been studying as threats because of the Soviet doctrine. Now, all of a sudden, well, the, the Saudis have it, and so do the Iraqis, and, and then the Kuwaitis have pickups with machine guns in them. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it, – so how do I know which BMP I can shoot at? Because some of them are good and some of them are bad. And it, so there was ton, a ton of training, and it, I was really impressed. Um, and I'll try not to get off on it because I have a whole tirade about how that went later on in OIF and OEF. It got way out of hand. But Desert Storm, very good, lots of training. Could have been more, but it was a rapid deployment. I mean, we sent a ton of people in a very short period of time. Um, so that, that was a pretty rapid setup where OIF, OEF, we had, well, we had 20 years OEF to, to, <laughs> to even out our pre-deployment training. So uh, going back uh, to, to the book a little bit, so uh, just to start off in your prologue, you present um, like the base of your story, which I actually really enjoy the structure as your confession to an Orthodox priest. And then you, you, then you go, you know, jump back in time and then proceed to tell about your entire career uh, up to and then including the Marine Corps. Um, so to what extent was, was this like, was were, were you writing toward just for yourself or were you writing for an intended audience? Was it civilian oriented? Was it mar Marine oriented? Like who, who, when, when you envision eventually writing this book and structuring your story that way, who was this, who was this meant for? That is a great question. <laughs> and it has changed a little bit. Um, we went through, you know, we, we kind of got off subject here. Uh, in 2004, 2003, and 2004, uh, Rob and I got together, whiteboarded, and discussed. 2014. Um, I'm sorry. 14. What, that's what I meant to say. So <laughs> 2013, 2014, yeah. Rob and I got together and, and whiteboarded. Um, where we're trying to go with this, what are we trying to produce, who's the audience, what's the story, what are we going to include, what are we not going to include, and we're coming from drastically different perspectives going into this. I had kind of toyed over the years, I'd kind of toyed with the idea of writing a book when I got out, retired, but it was more along the lines of Greenside Out, Brownside Out, Brownside Out, which is a collection of short stories, and intended it to just be a, a humor thing. You know, like uh, you know, tell, telling all your jokes about, <laughs> oh, this one time when I was in the head and he jumped in and his pants ripped and, you know, whatever. Um, so that, that was my mentality coming into it. And I had taken, um, I had some notes. It wasn't quite a diary, but I had notes from, from different periods of times. The, the ubiquitous green logbook that, you know, I've got them from back when I was Lance Corporal. Rob's perspective was completely different. So here's the Marine, thinks we're going to do this, doesn't really know how to write. All my writing experiences are awards, fit reps, and NATOPS manuals, which is the worst kind of writing ever, but I actually got good at it. Uh, and here's literary guy, you know, let's, let's do more of a novel. And so it took us a while to get through it. Yeah, I mean, I think um... – we realized pretty soon early on that we weren't going to be, you know, Tim O'Brien level <laughs> literary achievement. Um, but w the main thing was just to really say what happened 
um, and clearly tell basically what happened in all these different periods um, in just the most natural way we could. And in terms of the intended reader, we assumed it was going to be people who are probably interested in military, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, obviously, like, going back, Michael Hare, Bernard Fall, stuff like that. My favorite book um, up to the time of, of this kind of Iraq period was Colby Buzzle's um, My War. Um, and I think that book appealed to people who are interested in military and a somewhat of a general audience as well. And that was you know, kind of our best, best we could kind of hope for. Um, but it's it's always hard, you know, ultimately you write a book that you would want to read yourself. And I think we achieved that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of arrived through bouncing back and forth. Uh, we arrived at military. Inter uh, so the target audience is interested in the military, doesn't know that much. Um, has some interest of history. And I really didn't think any military guys were going to like it. We, it. That's a challenge to water down your terms and your acronyms and, and all that and try not to make it too wordy to explain what a, a military thing means. Uh, and kind of the mentality I adopted, which was kind of in the back of my mind all along, was when you meet somebody new in, um, you know, you start a new job or whatever, and they say, oh, you were in the Marine Corps. Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. How much time you got? <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. talk a lot. <laughs> and you can't answer that. So here's this this book is that answer. Uh, my yeah. kids, you know, my family um, and, you know, whoever. What's it like? Hey, I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps. What, what advice do you have for me? Oh, buddy, how much time do you got? Here you go. <laughs> uh, read this book. Um, you know, and it's not the answer to all of it. But it, it gives you some glimpses into the experiences and kind of illustrates my mentalities of, of how to approach different things. Now, we did, we did make the point early on, um, and it's kind of funny from our, our backgrounds being sort of polar opposites, it, it, we, we very strictly avoided any political message or comments yeah uh I, we we hinted at a couple that like hey this is a discussion i'm happy to have with you but we're not having that discussion in the book if that makes sense and what was your logic behind that um we don't want to alienate anyone uh for one and i think it's I, I, we well andy you're just not that political a person at the end true. of the day True. Um, <laughs> and I, I get passionate about stuff that surprises people sometimes. But um, we, in that effort of where's our target audience, what are we trying to achieve, where are we going with this book, um, we, we discovered there's two camps of military books out there. There's the expose and there's the, you know, I shot bin Laden, uh, and, and no offense to Robert O'Neill, great guy, <laughs> uh, some great writing, and, and I, I should be careful about how I say that stuff. Uh, big fan. But those are the two extremes. And, yeah. and most of the books you read fall into those. 
And most of those books cover a one conflict or one battle. Um, so we, we wanted to get in the middle there. It's not an expose. It's not a political rant. Uh, by the way, Marines. So Jarhead came out. Um, you know, we, all the Marines got all excited. Oh, a book about Marines. Yeah. <laughs> and we hated it because it yeah. was. Yeah. It had a message that we didn't agree with, and it painted the Marine Corps in kind of a poor light. Mm -hmm. um, not saying he's wrong or right, uh, but Marines did not like the book, and we were all excited about it. Um, so didn't want to go there. And I, you know, I'm not a SEAL. I'm not Force Recon. I'm not some famous guy. This is kind of everyday stories. But I mean, but Andy, to be fair, though, you, I mean, you ran the air support in Fallujah. So, I mean, there's some very, <laughs> you did some pretty significant I, stuff. I feel that's... a little bit like Forrest Gump, honestly. <laughs> uh, well, because yeah, through, how else you end up in Kosovo? Rob made a point of this, of, hey, make sure you put benchmarks in so that a reader can cage what time we're talking about yeah. as, as you're going through. Because when I look back, I, I kind of, as a joke, wrote myself this little letter about, you know, to, to kind of pat myself on the back. Uh, I've seen the birthplace of Christ. I've seen Mount Vesuvius erupt. I've seen, you know, all, all these amazing things that through my time in the Marine Corps. But it's totally by coincidence. It's not by, by skill or, you know, fame. It's by nature of putting my head down and doing my work. And you look up and you're like, oh, this is kind of significant in history. The whole thing about CNN and the Gulf War, you know, it's kind of a little historic thing there. And, and through time, you know, of course, 9-11, um, Bosnia, Kosovo, all that stuff. And that is kind of eclipsed by everything else nowadays. Um, you know, OIF, OEF. So when I look back at I have a lot to say because I've seen a lot. Not, not that I'm really good at anything. But experience teaches you a lot. So I, I do feel like I have some, some stuff to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. So you uh, talk about in, in part of your book, uh, having, having served uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, the difficulty of relating your experiences and talking to civilians, because especially from my perspective, it seems like a lot of people from my generation, younger and some older, have... You know, they can't name three cities in Iraq. They can't name three mm -hmm. cities in Afghanistan. They can't name three battles. So you notice, you know how difficult it is. Yet, um, you're able to uh, work with uh, Rob here to, to really encapsulate all of your experiences and tell things that you won't usually have in a conversation with civilians. What do you recommend um, both for veterans talking to uh, civilians about their experiences? And Rob, what do you recommend... Uh, for civilians to do when veterans are talking to them about their experiences. Andy, you want to start? I, I'll throw out, I'll throw out a couple of thoughts here. And at the, at the risk of alienating some of my brothers, um, when you, you have to come off your high horse uh, when you are trying to relate a story or a, condition or a position, um, you're, you don't realize how much you know about Marine Corps stuff or military stuff. I keep, this isn't just about the Marine Corps. I mean, 
all the services have the same issues. You spend four years minimum, maybe 30 years or, or even more, and this is your life, and this is your mentality, and this is your background, and, and this is what you know. So you can't grab a civilian and build the watch. You don't have four years of what it took you to get your, so you got to kind of back off and water it down a little bit and accept that that is fine. And that's hard to do, especially when it's stuff you're passionate about. And Marines are passionate because they're Marines, right? And that's part of what brings them to the Marine Corps. Uh, they're very proud and, and that is hugely important. That's a whole nother tirade I could go off on and I'll try to avoid it. But the first step is to kind of back off, water yourself down, take it easy, um, and, and that can be that can be hard to do. Um, and then what what is it really important? And I'm going to interject one. Well, this won't be the only story, but here's a funny little story that I, I love. This story it really ticked me off at the time. I was back visiting my parents after I had been commissioned, been to flight school, and so now I'm flying Hueys in the Marine Corps. I go back to visit my parents, and we go to their church. And one of the little old ladies that's known me since I was knee-high says, so how you like the Air Force now? And I was like, what the? It, mentally, I didn't say anything, <laughs> but mentally, I'm, what the? I've been in the Marine Corps how many years? What? what? So after church, you know, go with mom and dad. We go get a coffee and a donut or whatever. I'm like, mom, you know, why did Mrs. Smith think I'm in the Air Force? And she says, well, you're flying now. You're in the Air Force now, right? <laughs> my mother thought I was in the Air Force because I was flying. Yeah. And, and, and that's because she is not that familiar with military stuff. She knows I'm in the Marine Corps. She went to my boot camp graduation. Mm -hmm. uh, but here all of a sudden, she, you know, well, flying stuff is in the Air Force. So what they know and what they don't know. Well, well so back to the story that the, the message from the story is, what does it matter? The little old ladies at my mom's church think I'm in the Air Force. What does it matter? That's fine. Let it go. You know, take a deep breath, <laughs> smile away, boys, smile away. <laughs> so, so that and, was that uh, was yeah, rudimentary big thing for me to learn. You know what? Let it go. I mean, I was all fired up. So that's that's my point. Let it go. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, my perspective on this early was formed, you know, as I think I mentioned before the show. So my father was in, in Vietnam, um, you know, um, and I think about their generation, you know, and um, my father-in-law was in Vietnam, too, as a SEAL. Um, those guys were drafted, you know, and we don't have now we've shifted to a, a professional class or different, you know, volunteer army. And it's it's created, William, I think what you're describing a little bit of like this divide, which I'm concerned about. And it's funny when you talk to people like Andy, they typically are not that concerned <laughs> about it. They're okay being off on the side, but um, it's created a kind of a lack of understanding, I think, between the two groups. There used to be a closer understanding because, you know, everybody kind of had to do it at some point, um, but now you don't. Um, so I think that's uh, one interesting thing. Um, another interesting thing is a lot of people who are far away from the military folks and more, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but they tend to think of 
vets has been, uh, you know, there's so much about PTSD in the news. Um, and there's so much, a lot of these stories that are successful are about um, PTSD or, you know, some sort of trauma. But there are lots of guys like Andy. <laughs> Andy doesn't really have PTSD. You know, he's fine. You know, Andy's the same guy I was when he was 14, as far as I can tell. Um, so I think there's there's something there, too. Like, there, there's kind of like this perception of, military people by non-military people. And I, I'd love to, if Radio Man could do one little thing to break that down just a little bit, I think that'd be amazing. But um, yeah, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are the two things that came to mind. That, well, Rob, we, we've had this discussion a hundred times, you and I, that I, I have a little bit of a personal struggle with my internal belief or description there between you know, the warrior class yeah. Why, why do we have why do we have the military in this? And I, I'm a believer in having your your warrior class that go do warrior stuff so that the rest of your society doesn't have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's their job. And you accept you, you sign that check. You know, you accept all those risks and get injured, get killed, get, uh, you know, I'm going to see the world different after I see that. And I don't want, if everybody in the U.S. understands exactly how I feel and think, well, that means they had to experience those traumas, which is, that's not why I do my job. I do my job, or what was my job, so they don't have to. So I have a conundrum there that, yes, I want to be understood, I, I want to be acknowledged, but... I don't want everyone to have to experience those risks or those traumas that it, I have accepted that. And I take, I wore that badge with pride and we should. And I think that gets lost in our, um, you know, that the, the typical story or the, the common story of the um, veteran comes home is, is misunderstood, um, is insignificant now and is a suicide risk. Which is mm -hmm. again, there's there's another thing that I could go off on for hours, um, but the, I haven't solved that for myself. So how can I tell society how to solve that? It, I, I believe that there should be this difference, and I don't want uh, anyway. So the book is an ease into that. I I, I definitely that was part of the mentality um, was. You don't have to understand the full bit, but if you just know that, yeah, I had to do this, or or I was scared so bad this time that this happened. <laughs> you don't need to be scared to that level. That's unfair. Don't we want to not do that to people? But um, if you can get just a light glimpse of it, that that goes a long way into, hey, now let's talk about. You know, should we pay back school loans? <laughs> you know, it kind of gives you some some common ground to, to talk on other other things. Uh, that, that we're all people, and we're all let's let's just have good good conversations and not start off by fighting about stuff. No, that's 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 fair. Thanks for that. So when you, so when you eventually uh, structured your book out, that was going to cover not just be vignettes, but be you know essentially your your entire life through the Marine Corps. Uh, you decided to include uh, things that outside of your tours, outside of your your training deployments, about your own personal life, which 
brings up some very important issues that a lot of people really don't think about when they think about uh, uh, service members. Of, of There are trends and stereotypes that, that exist. Why did you feel that that was necessary to tell your story? And uh, how do you, I guess, how, how would you, uh, actually, we'll, we'll stick with that. Like, how, how, why would you feel that was uh, uh, needed to be part of your story? Do you mean the kind of more personal stuff of the family stuff? Yeah, like family, ex-wife. I mean, I'll I'll let Andy answer, but I'm just going to say, like, I feel like that is really an important component of anyone who's in the services. When you're over there, what's going, you know, I think they think a lot about what's going on back at home. And um, to ignore that would cut out a major element of the experience of being over there. Because I think when you're, I've, never deploy but i mean you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about what you're missing back home especially if you have young children um but anyway sorry i'll let andy <laughs> so i think we, we wanted to try to have the breadth of that rob's exactly he's dead on um that it, it, you can't take any one particular situation in isolation right it, it's all everything's related um and affects each other. It's, your life is a Rubik's cube. You change one face, you're going to change the other faces. So that I never really thought about it without telling those stories. The only way that I would have gone somewhere was back in the, in the vignette style, right? If it's just these short stories. Yeah. Um, as a, it, it, it really, it builds. And so to understand or, or for, to make sense, what I tell it would, when I tell you a story about being a major in, in the infantry regiment, um, being the air officer, there are so many levels to that, that if you just understand, okay, fairly high rank, back with grunts, okay. But if you want to go a little bit deeper, like, okay, here's an aviator that's living amongst the apes that, that proclaim how much they hate them. It, you know, that's a whole nother level in there that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, then you like my buddies from that time are all, well, and all non grunts, but most of them are, you know, the joke personnel other than grunts, right? We're all pogues. So we we were the island of misfit toys at the, at the regiment, and I can't just tell you one story about being the the air officer at the regiment and cover all those le- levels, but I think in reading you can choose how deep or shallow you want to be. Uh, if you really want to think about what came earlier and wow, you know, now that I think about it, that ties back to da, da, da. And if you don't, if you just want to be entertained and, and meander along through the story, like you're watching TV, there it is. You can go either way. Do you so, think, uh, I'm just going to jump in here with a quick thought. Uh, do you think that by, because you were rotary instead of fixed wing, that might've gotten you a little bit closer to quote unquote, the apes? <laughs> Yes, most definitely. Um, but I will throw out that it is, in part, it is the aviator's faults. Um, it, it, here's we're bringing up an example of different levels of of stuff and and how you understand here. But um, helo pilots in their training pipeline and in in the in the Marine Corps are very much more connected. To the infantry than the, the jet pilots, the sucking mm-hmm. guys. <laughs> um, 
and we do it to ourselves. And that is actually one of the little kind of low-key jokes I had in the book about Radio Man. Like in the book, okay, Radio Man, yeah, that was the first six years or so. But now you're pilot. Why we talked we went through a hundred different titles for the book, obviously. But the mentality of a good radio man is very much the same as the mentality of a good air officer, a good helo pilot, and could be the mentality of a good jet pilot, but they don't tend to take that uh, to heart. Uh, so, yes, <laughs> rotary wing pilots, definitely more connected. Um, but individually, there's a lot of room, um, you know, different, different pilots with different backgrounds, where they've been, it's all... All different, but it definitely gained me some uh, traction, as did having Angle gained me traction when I got to the regiment. So part of the reason why I liked your book a lot is because you actually get like a, a lot of different perspectives than what you usually get from one account. Because typically I'll read you read books written by the grunts, by by the infantrymen, and we get a little bit of that with your uh, uh, Desert Storm. Uh, perspective but then when you go into you know your, your hello uh hello training and schooling and, and career there and then when you go to iraq and afghanistan you're you're kind of uh more, one of the more like i guess i say quote unquote behind the scenes you're directing air support in fallujah and then doing the same thing in other places in iraq and afghanistan uh so what are some of i guess the misconceptions about that the, either the public or the marine corps has against these more behind the scene personnel and their experiences that you wouldn't usually get from just a grunt story. That brings up a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> That's a um, great question. It, it is. And, and that actually that kind of goes back to one of the kind of points of the book. Um, obviously, the, uh, when the, the image of the Marine Corps is infantry. You know, every, every Marine a rifleman. Uh, and, and we that's true, and we love it. But of course, someone that is a by trade infantryman is going to have a little more skill at those. those they're going to have a better skill set there than a cook or a, a radio man or a, a corpsman or any of the other jobs. Right. So um, the story gets more glamorized from the infantry mm -hmm. and probably rightly so, because they're the, the tip of the spear. They're the ones out doing the action. But for every one of those guys, there's there's ten guys that are busting their butt. They're deployed. Um, their their risk is different, but it's still there, um, and their life is actually way more complicated. I'm going to get some hate mail here, <laughs> but a grunt's <laughs> life is fairly simple: um, eat, train, sleep. <laughs> you know, lift. <laughs> Lift till you're tired, sleep till you're hungry, eat till you're ready to lift again. Uh, now I'm over-exaggerating a little bit. Uh, well, more than a little bit. Um, so the the guy behind the guy, he, he's, he's still forward deployed. He's still away from his family. And that kind of is why the, the family story is still important. Because, um, what you know, yeah, I wasn't the guy that was uh, kicking in the doors in Fallujah. Um, and the guys that were, when I tell them I was in Fallujah, they're like, oh, yeah, well, you were kind of there. And, okay, fair <laughs> enough, you know. Their, their experience was completely different than mine. They, 
on a on a minute by minute basis, they're threatened with getting shot um, or blown up. Mine was, you know, yeah, hourly maybe or you know daily on on a date. You know, there was one period of time each day where I was at risk, like they were at risk every minute of the day. So different experience, different. And, and here I go off subject again. Um, but there, you know, there, you there's, had a, there's level a ton of-, of Marine Corps experience and stuff that is has to happen for the battle to be won. And it's um, it's non glamorous, but it's inter- I think it's interesting. So that- but there's a, you, you, you had a level of responsibility there in Fallujah where you your actions taking or not taking an action would have a direct result on people who got killed at any moment like there so you were in it it's just you were behind a computer screen but you were watching a feed and taking actions that would have a direct result oh most definitely yes um and i was talking with them you know i'm I'm on the radio with them entirely the entire time um and would accept some risk where I could that it would alleviate somebody else having risk. Uh, but I would just, just to the, to the point of the, there's a huge logistic train to put one, to, to make one yeah. infantryman effective um, out there and, and to take care of them. There's a huge logistical train and that, that story should get told too. Yeah, speaking of the story getting told, we kind of just skipped about 10 years there. We kind of glossed <laughs> over, ah. over about a decade. And I want to make sure we at least get some of the some of the Balkan talk in here. Yeah. Um, so I don't know where you want to where you'd want to kind of open that up, because this is now you as a helo pilot, right? Correct. Uh, getting into U- Kosovo, U-E's. which was very much a CNN war that we've now yeah. forgotten about. True, very true. Um, and that was my first real in-depth exposure to a completely different cultural experience trying to understand the conflict that we're approaching. Uh, we, we, we talked a little bit before about the, you know Arab mindset or, or whatever euphemism is. It's probably not politically correct to say that. So... Um, but the, you know, mindset of, of Eastern versus Western, the the genocide and the the rivalries in the Balkans go back so far, and they're just you know Americans. We got two, three hundred years worth of history. We understand a little bit of you know a lot of us probably carry some British mindset from earlier, but for the most part, we're pretty recent and it's easy to understand. Uh, you know, a little bit of civil war in there. Okay, I, where'd you grow up? Oh, yeah, yeah. And you, but the Balkans, holy cow, man! <laughs> I was I was blown away. So weird, weird time that's hard to remember our mindset. Um, so this is late late nineties, early two thousands, right? Pre nine eleven. Um, military is still okay. Desert Storm, yeah, that happened. And it was over in 72 hours or what have you. Everybody's home, um, fairly low uh, casualties. 
you know, everything went pretty well. We won. Yeah, we're the big bad boys. Now we're doing, um, for the Marine Corps, we're doing the MU deployments, right, where you go on a ship for six months and either the Pacific side or the Atlantic side. I was in Camp Lejeune area, um, so I'm going Atlantic. We spend most of the time in the med, and it's like the world's police force. And small skirmishes here and there. there you know, there's a little bit going on in Africa. Um, we're worried about Korea. And, you know, there's a few hot spots going on, but the Balkans was like, that's our next conflict. Uh, that's the next place it's going to erupt. Now, we, we didn't really have an eruption per se, but it, it yeah, really we, close. We, yeah, it was yes. Fairly it was, well it was on the edge. Um, so our, uh, that was what we were preparing for um, in that in that time. And so when the when my turn for deployment came up and, and OK, so we're going um, it. That was the classic. I've I've, I've been training coach. Let me go. I'm, I'm ready to go to war. Um, we didn't really know what the war was. It was not that well defined. And we were the unit that I went with were a little bit latecomers. Right. So the Bosnia bit was 90, 98, uh, the, the major um, influence and NATO involvement started in 98, if I remember my dates right. So we're, we're a year or two after that, where Bosnia had kind of calmed down, but it is now an uh, issue in Kosovo, Macedonia, well, not really Macedonia, but the northern end of Macedonia, and Kosovo, and Albania, and, oh, man, here I am showing my rear end. There's, the next a, lot country, of, there's a lot of but borders in, in there. It, yeah. it, so, so it shifted a little bit, um, but it's not as, not as big a hot spot. But... NATO sends in uh, um, I-4, International Stabilization Force. Um, in any case, it's a NATO force to, uh, um, you know, kind of the, the classic peacekeeper bit. And so we're, we're gone in as part of the U.S.'s contribution to that. Now, we're worried about, you know, the, the risk, the possibility of getting shot at is, is there. Um, but the, the day-to-day... Um, risk for helo pilots is is fairly um benign uh, we're we're armed every day going in we're, we're expecting to get shot at we're, we're doing our penetration checks and we're doing all that bit um and i got, got lucky um you know one of the worst things that happened was they were the crowd was throwing dirt clods at, at the helicopter <laughs> um and, and 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 maybe they had every every right to because I think we flew over their sheep farm and and the sheep got scared and busted out the busted out the fences you know and now this poor poor farmer that has nothing and his four sheep are running down the street or running across the fields and it's my fault um, so maybe he had every right to throw dirt clods at me uh, but that that was about the the worst um, that we experienced but that doesn't mean that the guys we were picking up and inserting weren't um you know they're they're um that actually that sheep incident was recovering a uh recon force uh, observation team that had gotten compromised and they they called us and said come get us the hell out of here uh, and that's how that whole whole thing happened but so there's a conflict that doesn't get talked about um and and it's kind of dimmed in in all our memories because of the the the, the numbers of people involved and the casualties and such were so much smaller 
than anything before after it, it kind of gets swept under the rug. But it's something to remember in our, our history of what you know, that, that was an experience we had that was things that we did. Um, and, and I think we did well. I, I think we pulled that off admirably. We did what Marines are supposed to do, nothing more, nothing less. And there was a lot of potential for um, cultural uh, alienation incidents. Um, you know, well, anytime you got a bunch of Marines walking around with bullets in their guns, <laughs> there's yeah. potential for something <laughs> to go wrong. But uh, <laughs> Marines did well. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm proud to have been part of it. Because it was it was very much a powder keg. Like if you uh, go back and look at like news reports from the time, everybody's mm -hmm. thinking, you know, worth talking about World War Three now. That was kind of the it, World War Three back then. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. was you what know, the parallel like to World War One. Uh, yeah. You know it, it, that that parallel was there the entire mm -hmm. time, and fortunately, and it, none. Of, I'm not claiming any correct doing for this other than being one of the pawns there. But it it seems to have been handled well politically. And, and levels way higher than me because it never erupted as we feared that it was going to. All right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we talked about it because that's one of those weird little points in history where, yeah, it's like finding folks that were actually there and involved is, is kind of hard to do. Because mm -hmm. um, even though that, yeah, I can't remember what, what was the American involvement like? Uh, 4, well, in 5,000, like, yeah, and that was the Scott O'Grady mission. I don't know if you, you remember that. Remember, he uh, was shot down, um, and as he had to do escape and evasion for six days, I think, wow, you know, yeah. drinking, drinking rainwater out of, out of leaves and yeah. eating bugs. That's fired that Owen Wilson movie. It was, um, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, um, by the way, the Huey action in that Owen Wilson is is not terribly accurate. <laughs> <laughs> they can't carry that many missiles. <laughs> but it's fun. It's a fun movie, but it's kind of anyway. Can't remember what's called off the top of my head, but behind um, enemy lines. There it is. You got it. All right. <laughs> so you, you start off uh in, in your Marine Corps career as a radio man and but then uh you become a Mustang, you become an officer and a, and a pilot and you go on from there. Uh, we had actually a, um, a member from the Marine Corps Mustang Association on, so I, I asked, I'm going to ask him the same question uh, I asked him, uh, is uh, how did your experience as a prior enlisted help you in uh, officer training and then as well as in, in your career? That's, again, that's a huge question. Um, and I will admit, uh, this is something I have looked into, but not enough. And I, I hesitate to claim the title Mustang um, because it's all in your interpretation of what it actually is. Um, I was enlisted. I went to boot camp. And then I became commissioned. And I was an officer. So if that counts as a Mustang, I'm a Mustang. If, uh, but some, people will, will, some people's impression is that a Mustang is when the Marine Corps pulls you up from being enlisted. And, and I was not, I didn't do MESEP or, you know, advanced commissioning or any of those different programs that they've been through the years. Um, I, I went to school on my own, got my degree, and then kind of came back uh, from, from the reserves to, to commissioning. So 
sorry, didn't mean to get on a high horse about what exactly a Mustang is. I don't actually know. And the Mustang, <laughs> the Mustang uh, Association has contacted me, and, and I'm hesitant. I need to talk to them about it. But having talked uh, to them, I think the definition is you went to boot camp, then you're an officer. So okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> and, and if we're wrong, if if we're wrong, any Mustang wants to chew us out, please send us an email and come <laughs> on our show, and you can yell at us in person. Okay. <laughs> uh, fair enough. <laughs> Going to boot camp definitely prepares you for OCS, but OCS is different in just enough ways that the drill instructors that you now call uh, sergeant instructors, they still they, they still scare the crap out of you. Um, if you've done boot camp, that doesn't mean OCS is a walk in the park. Which one is harder? Can't answer it. it it's, it's on a different level. Um, there's different emphasis as there should be. Boot camp is all about moving, doing whatever you're supposed to be doing as fast and as hard and as accurate and as long as you can. Following orders, jumping to, moving quickly, you know, all, all, the, all the stuff you hear in the movies. Move with a sense of purpose. How about today? Sometime before Christmas? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> OCS is to do that, but you have to decide which way you're going. And you have to decide that with half of the information you need to make the decision. Uh, so kind of two things that come out in OCS. And by the way, in OCS, you have to write punitive essays. When you screw up, <laughs> you've got to write an essay. <laughs> so it is a little more cerebral, uh, OCS. And, and yes, I, I had to write several essays when I was at OCS. So you're ready to write a book from the beginning there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should have pulled those out. I'm sure they're in my record somewhere. <laughs> um, but OCS is about what are you going to do now, Lieutenant? Um, you know, what you, you have to make a decision promptly with limited information. Um, and, you know, the old joke about the lieutenant has no experience. So what's the scariest thing is a lieutenant saying in my experience, but <laughs> you got to lean on that. Um, so it's a different stress level, uh, but having learned to operate, being stressed out and ready to pee yourself benefits you every time that you get stressed out. So boot camp most definitely helps prepare you for OCS. It will not send you sailing cleanly through. Plus, I already knew how to do the obstacle course. I knew how to deck towel. I knew how to do all, all these little harassment things. Uh, and I kind of know how the Marine Corps operates. And, of course, I know rank structure, right? The, some, some of the other college students in my OCS class, they don't even know the Marine Corps rank structure yet. And, and they're, you're getting that. And, and I had that down because I had already been a Marine. So uh, definitely helpful. When you get out to the fleet, Mustangs or, or prior service or prior enlisted officers fall into two categories in my experience. Um, and again, here I'm opening myself up to some hate mail, but I think everyone will, will agree to some, to, to some point. You have the ones that use their previous experience to help themselves, and you have the ones that use their previous experience to be more effective and to help everybody else. So when I checked into TBS, the basic school, right, the next school after OCS, 
and I meet my, he's going to be my platoon commander, right? He's a, a, a Marine captain. I'm a food ass lieutenant. And he sees me walk in and I'm wearing my jump wings and I, I do my formal check-in and he goes, I hate prior enlisted. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going <laughs> to die. You know, this is, this is the guy that, I mean, it, it's, it's a, sh a mentality shift, right? Or, okay. OCS is done. Now TBS is a, a positive learning environment and you know, it's not the, the high stress screaming at you. Um, it is high stress, but, but it's not the, the boot camp type shit. Right. So this, this is your, your teacher that's going to nurture you and bring you along. And he, he looks at me square in the face and says, I hate you. Oh, but that's because his experience, and he explained this to me like a month later. <laughs> Thanks. It, uh, great, great man. Most, most respect for him. You could ever say, um, anyway, he had a horrible experience with a roommate at TBS that was prior service when, when he was a student at TBS and the guy was skating because he knew how to skate. And he was using that previous experience to get away with having to work so hard um, or without having to work so hard. And so he, he was very negative towards prior enlisted. And then I think it, it's not a 50, 50 ratio. It's probably a, a 20 to 80% ratio, 20% prior enlisted officers are maybe could do a little better to help everybody else. Um, so it's a mixed experience, but when you walk into your unit and they see in your ribbons or, you know, for me, it was having jump wings already before I've been to flight school that let people know that, okay, this is not just another Lieutenant that just came from TBS. Um, they, 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 they give you another shot. Um, you know, they, they give you they, lieutenants get shit on because <laughs> they're new and they don't know anything. Uh, so they, they kind of deserve it, but they get hammered. You know, they're obviously the new guy. You look at your rank and you know that that guy's a new guy. So you can just crap on him. Um, and so it's a little bit tough being a lieutenant. Uh, so it definitely helped with just that, that, that bit. But it also helped me be more effective at my job because I know how things go. And so when I'm telling the, the Marines that, oh, you know, one of the best things, you, okay, your leadership should shield you from higher tasking when it's reasonable. And I remember being that Lance Corporal, go over this way, go get those sandbags filled, go get this, got it done. You know, like what the and then 10 minutes later, you're emptying all the sandbags you just filled. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, so I remember that. So I would push back a little bit when those taskers come down. All right, before I'm gonna throw my guys on this bus to, to get this done, prove to me it needs to be done. Because they've been trained at boot camp not to question, just to follow the orders. Don't question what you and and you, that there's that's for a reason. But now I'm at the level where I need to question it, where I can. You can't always, right? But where you can, what are these sandbags going to be for? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, you know and, and now the the captain that I'm questioning, if I was just some stupid lieutenant, not all lieutenants are stupid. But if I was untrained, unexperienced <laughs> lieutenant, if I was an unexperienced lieutenant, the captain would be, go the hell away and do what I told you. Okay, roger that, sir. But I'm wearing jump wings. I obviously know my way around the Marine Corps a little bit. He says, oh, well, you know, higher headquarters is just trying to keep us busy for the middle. You know, so he would say that to me. 
maybe that was the case. I'm just making up the story, but it, it has happened. Um, whereas if I was nobody and hadn't been to boot camp, didn't have a little experience, he would have just blown me off. So, mm -hmm. yes, definitely helps both on the level of credibility and getting listened to and on the level of kind of kind of knowing what's going on and and watching out for the, the the busy work that doesn't necessarily need to be done because Marines have too much of that crap already. Yeah. If the right person finds that little little clip right there, they're going to snip it right out of here and they're going to use it for uh Maybe a PME or something. I don't know. That was good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> I, I learned something. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, speaking of, you know, young, inexperienced, dumb, sucking lieutenants, you uh, did a brief stint in Auburn University as a Naval ROTC instructor. What are your thoughts in the program and your experiences in there? What, what are your thoughts on the quality of the offers created through that program? Would you recommend it? Yes. Uh, I love that time. And there's a whole side note that if you map out my career, particularly as an officer, I have been very fortunate to get a, a highly deploying tour, a, a, a staff or school tour, highly deploying tour, staff or school tour. And that has saved me. And that tour uh, at Auburn saved me from burnout and and walking away from the marine corps mm. um that was that was on the heels of my second year-long deployment to iraq that were eight months apart um and it was groundhog day you know it was doing the same it was, it was good work that needed to be done but i was burnt so getting back to the school environment uh was was critical for me to kind of recharge and the students brought such energy they loved hearing the stories they want to know what the fleet's like what's it like out there you just got home from iraq tell me all about it mm. um and that was energizing for me and um uh, so answer number one <coughs> excuse me answer number two i think it's a fantastic program i don't know in the big scheme of things if it is a financially responsible uh program we spent a lot of money on that program, um, but I love it. And I think the quality, so you're kind of bridging the gap. So you get a lieutenant that's been through NROTC, as long as he doesn't get his high horse that, oh, I'm so experienced. I did three years at NROTC. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and we all know that guy, right? The guy from Animal House, right? That was shot by his own troops in Vietnam. Um, <laughs> that, that guy exists. So as long as you can avoid making that guy, you're sending somebody to the fleet in between complete non-experienced Marine and, for example, a Mustang, right? You, you're getting them a little bit. You're bridging the gap, which is fantastic because the guy is going to have experience in leadership positions because as, as student billet holders, you learn a lot. Um, time management stuff, you, you, you get hammered. Well, you don't get hammered, but... There are times where you're really busy in the NRTC unit and you're busy getting your degree at the same time, right? Um, so th those kids get, those young, young people get stressed out and learn, hopefully, learn how to do it. And I think we weed out a whole bunch that think that it's something that it's not. And then they start finding out about the, you know, fit reps, writing fit reps. I have to write fitness reports? Holy crap. 
you know, you expose them to some of the world of what the military is. Um, now, it, it, what a great deal for the student. You get a free ride. You get your school paid for. I mean, that's that's an amazing opportunity. So I love the program. Um, that was a key time for me. And my wife has told me since then um, in her <laughs> sarcastic way. <laughs> Direct, very sarcastic. <laughs> Um, just she'll 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 tell you what she's thinking. <laughs> um, she if you wouldn't have done that tour, you would have come home from your next deployment to an empty house. Yeah. Uh, so and, and my son was three at that point. Uh, daughter was six. So that was a key time for me to be home mm-hmm. and connect with my kids and have have some kid time. And it was at Auburn. It, it, it here's a. Short vignette. <laughs> it was at Auburn when I matched the number of birthdays I had been home for my kids is the number of birthdays I had missed. And that doesn't sound like that big a deal, but that was a really big deal to me to, to now be on the upside and gaining ground. Because uh, mm-hmm. when you've missed more birthdays than you've made, you, you just feel like a terrible parent. That's just the way it is. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, well, daddy has to go to work. Um, and I'm, I'm doing stuff that's important for, for your security, but you know, a four-year-old doesn't get that. And I got Kate, where's my dad? You know? So uh, that, that was, that was a great tour. Love that tour. Completely different. Uh, my, so it's, it's a Navy based program, right? And I'm one of two Marines on staff. We had a lot of fun with that. Um, cause the Marines are crazy ones right but the co and navy captain who's 06 takes me aside and says okay you're not in the marine corps <laughs> this is this is not the marine corps here this is a navy operation so chill the hell out <laughs> uh, and, and that was good i needed that because i needed to chill out because i was wound a little too tight from being in iraq an awful lot um and the students were not at that level like it's funny because a bunch of uniform regulations and what is appropriate civilian attire, that order for the Marine Corps had just gotten rewritten, and I was unaware of it. You could legally wear what we call shower shoes. They're really <laughs> flip-flops, right? But my mentality from the previous order was you do not wear shower shoes in public. That's <laughs> against Marine Corps regulations. And here I got these students, and they're just college students, right? They wearing flip flops and a t-shirt, no belt. There was basically swim trunks, right? And then they're coming to coming to drill, looking like this. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm losing my mind. They're like, we had we had this one uh, female battalion uh, student battalion commander, and and she's standing in front of the battalion wearing shower shoes, and they actually weren't shower shoes. They were leather straps and and I was having a discussion with her afterwards you know after she's done addressing the battalion take her aside hey Amanda what um you know what, appropriate civilian attire in front of the entire battalion you know it's the 200 students so it's not huge but and she's like, but but sir they're cute <laughs> ah that blew my mind so it was a mentality shift but it was good it was a good mentality shift for me and I am in contact with a lot of those students still. And, 
you you don't realize how much you affect them. Uh, I mean, I, some of the Navy students that weren't really my, you know, of course, I dealt mostly with the Marines, but I was the operations officer for the battalion. Um, so I, I dealt with all the Navy students also. And they would tell me, you know, I'll, I'll get a note from them on Facebook or, you know, social media or something. Hey, sir, that reminds me of that time in NRT. And like, I can't remember. I can't believe that you remember that. And that's significant to you. So it, you know, being an instructor, as part of being an instructor, you have an impact on their lives. But it, it's heartwarming to, to have a good impact that they remember years later. Yeah, I, I used to be a teacher, and I whenever I see my kids randomly around town, I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so I hear that. Um, you you want to get anything else, William? Yeah, I do. So uh, on the other side of, of, of uh, you know, military education, I really appreciated as one of the uh, editors of Marine Corps Gazette, the shout out you gave us uh, when you mentioned you co-authored a few articles. What uh what type of articles did you write for Marine Corps Gazette, and then what advice would you give to other Marine officers who would be uh, potential writers as well? Well, I have take a deep breath, compose my thoughts. Um, the Marine Corps Gazette is an amazing publication, and for anybody that is not familiar, it is a professional um, journal and and it's all about sharing stories and information to make us all better uh, Mickels Marine Corps lessons learned is is a huge uh, a huge effort in the Marine Corps and MC uh, or uh, the Gazette carries carries that badge well uh, so when significant things happen in the Marine Corps, a, a significant battle, or you try another technique, uh, we call them TTPs, right? Techniques, tactics, and procedures. When you see something other than doctrine does or doesn't work, uh, you, you need to get that word out there. And the Gazette is one of the great ways to throw that out, especially when you are not in the circle of whoever maintains that doctrine for the Marine Corps. Um, so it, it's an awesome program, and, and I love it. But when you get tasked with, hey, Hesty, I need you to document this and write this article. And now I'm trying to write an article for what the colonel is thinking. Mm. That's a very challenging. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I know what I'm thinking, and I could talk to him about it, but I rewrote those articles so many damn times. Um, because I wasn't quite capturing, and, and, and a little bit of the grunt aviator bit snuck in there, because um, he was a grunt, and I was obviously an aviator, uh, and he wanted to make his regiment look good, um, and that it was a result of Fallujah. So basically, um, it had been discussed tons of times, and it's a big deal of the, the Ender's Game complex from the book Ender's Game, right, of, of remote battles with with UAVs, drones, um, and, and our ability to cause havoc in precision from miles and miles and miles away uh, th th that shifts our TTPs and, and our doctrine should shift with it. And we demonstrated that over and over and over in Fallujah. 
And so we were trying to capture what worked, what didn't work, what things to think about. Hey, next time guys are in a conflict like that, you know, so they're not starting at, at ground zero. Um, and so my piece of it was the aviation piece of remote battles. And, and here's the guy that's, you know, we make this big deal about putting facts out with the grunts so that they can put a precision bomb and, and they're there so they understand the nuances and what we need and what the grunts really need at, for a bomb at, you know, what's the effect needed? When is it needed by blah, 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 blah. Um, but we kind of gotten away from that. So I'm, I'm going down into what the articles were actually about. What I mean to say is uh, it's important stuff to document, but you got to write it so defensively because anybody that doesn't like what you said is going to pull it apart if you aren't accurate you have to describe it correctly it's like writing awards and writing uh manuals try writing a manual sometime so that no one can misinterpret what you're trying to say you know turn the key to on turn the fuel pump on battery comes on I mean, you have to be so lockstep and, and careful with your phrasing. So those were a pain in the butt to write, honestly. Um, and, and it's funny because that ties into our initial writing and getting started with the book. My experience had been, so I was a Huey Natops manager, right? Like the standardization model manual for the UH-1 November in the Navy and Marine Corps was my responsibility. So making um, adjustments to it and that there's, that's one of those military manuals that you read that thing. Oh my gosh, we call it the big blue sleeping pill as a blue cover. And it is the most painful reading ever. Very third person, cold, you know, descriptive and awards are a bit that way. Fit reps are about that way. And those, those Gazette articles were a bit that way, um, but they need to be, um, so when we started writing, Rob looks at my first draft of the first thing, and he's like, uh, yeah, throwing it <laughs> over his shoulder. That's great. Let's, um, let's give that another go. <laughs> Fortunately, he was, uh, he was gentle. Um, but I think it's kind of it, – it, I think that's kind of a neat thing that you don't notice about reading the book is I didn't know how to write when we started I mean, writing in this in this manner, and and Rob is coaching me, and and uh, he'll he'll make an edit. He's editing me and coaching me as we go. So the more he can coach me, the less he has to edit me, right? As if he can teach me to put the exclamation mark outside of the quotations, that saves him work later on, right? <laughs> uh, but in any case, the um, my writing evolves our writing because it's it's this group effort that we got but i think you can taste it through the book that, that it's the last chapters are written different than the first chapters now rob completely wrote chapter one uh, yeah 100%. I, I not want to you were like i'm not interested like, in this at all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i was shocked at how accurate it was like how do you remember that crap um so full full credit where credit is due rob did an amazing job there. i think but, what maybe you're saying too is like the radio man is trying to bring andy's voice out a little more than you would have in like the gazette article and have that kind of authentic andy hesterman voice ring through the pages was like my that was my job kind of making sure that was in there and it wasn't just like 
what do you guys call him a sit rep or whatever like it wasn't just mm. that so um, might have been the was... one who found it i don't know what the punitive essay sounded like but it sounded like between the punitive <laughs> essays and radio man was a bunch of very technical writing yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> for sure hey, uh nick you got anything uh I, I could I'm enthralled. I could sit here, we could chat all day, but we are <laughs> we have been chatting for a while. So yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna drop the ceremonial last question on him, William? Well, first of all, before we do the ceremonial last question, where can our dear readers, I'm uh, sorry, not readers, listeners, uh go out buy this book for Christmas for their family, friends, and everyone they've ever met to make y'all that uh that good money? Aside from the <laughs> show notes, we're definitely dropping it down there. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Amazon is the uh, elephant in the room with book sales. And so it's on Amazon right now. We're up to 55 star reviews. So people seem to like it. Um, Barnes and Noble, all, most of the online channels, um, you can order it through your local bookstore. Uh, Pen and Sword is a small press, but they're easy to work with. And most of your local bookstores should be able to get it on hand. In fact, Andy and I are doing a reading this Sunday at the bookstore here in the town I live in, Bellingham, which is a, it's actually a large independent bookstore. So it's nice to support those guys and not just Amazon all the time. But you can find it anywhere, basically. Awesome. And so our our, seminal, our ceremonial last question is uh, for Andy. So uh, what was your best day in the Marine Corps? Oh, nice. Wow. I should have seen <laughs> that one coming. Um, completely unprepared. Uh, wow <laughs> there's a Singer. lot of levels there's a lot of levels to that um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put this one out um, flight school find the T-34 which is a fully aerobatic cool little trainer plane and you do about 12 flights and then you get into this phase of flights that's called uh, aerobatics, where you're supposed to fly loops and wing overs and all these exciting things that you see in the movies. And your third flight, a euphemism hand you the keys, right? There's no keys to the aircraft, but you get cold, you get told, here's a list of maneuvers. Walk out to that plane by yourself. And go fly it and go do these things. I want you to do these things that feel like you're hot rodding or flat hatting or, you know, and to, for an hour and a half, I got to burn Uncle Sam's fuel <laughs> in that cool ass little plane, flying upside down, winging over, doing loops, just having fun. I mean, it was hot rodding from the kid that I grew up driving a Pinto. Right? And it's, that was awesome. And that was the first flight that I enjoyed flying. Up to that point, I had been so stressed about the instructor yelling at me, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I remembering everything? Because flight school is stressful as hell. It's an entire test. Any given moment, it feels like you're gone. So I'm by myself soloing, doing this stuff. Oh, man. It was just the right amount of clouds that day. It was enough that you could kind of skirt around them and have fun, but that you weren't in risk of going inadvertent IMC and, and having trouble, right? And not being able to see. And that's a bad thing when you're flying. Um, so it was this gorgeous day. I, I was getting paid to hot rod this awesome little plane. Um, 
So that's my motorhead best day in the Marine Corps. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. And again, we appreciate y'all's time for coming on here on our show and uh, we uh, wish you all the best. Uh, stay well. And then uh, again, I hope this, uh, I hope all our, our listeners out there, you know, go buy a copy and uh, give it a good read. Buy one copy, buy two. Like why stop there, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can get it cheap on Kindle too. If you don't want to spend the full, whatever it's uh, you can get it on your e-reader right away too. So or just buy the hardcover, you know, be, you know, yeah, it's a nice collector edition on your shelf there. It looks good on a shelf, yeah. Hold the, uh, hold the, I know our listeners won't be able to see this, but hold the book up again, William, so we can get a good look at that. Good looking. Oh, there we go. We got it up twice. <laughs> That's a good looking cover. <laughs> Andy's uh, Hugh, I mean, Andy's uh, uh, Humvee from Gulf War with the, with a K Rock sticker. <laughs> K R O Q, world famous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. It has been just awesome having you. So um, thanks so much. Uh, I would love to get you back on if you got anything itching at you inside your skull, and uh, we'll uh, anytime. Feel free. Yeah, if you know whatever one, both of us, whatever. It's pretty easy. It's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. super fun. I, I'm very thankful for for being on. It it's been great. Thank you. All right, all right, guys. Well. Thanks, uh, everyone, tune in. Remember, we're uh, just going to do a quick disclaimer. Uh, our opinions are just our opinions. They don't represent <laughs> any any military institutions, uh, <laughs> publishers, or anything of that nature. So um, uh, if you're sending hate mail, send it to a junk box somewhere. We're not really worried about it. But if you want to have to say something cool, uh, hit us up at scuttlebutt at gmail, uh, at gmail, at mcmarines.org. Uh, and we'll uh, hit, hit uh, oh, my goodness, I'm... Not sticking the landing here, am I? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll catch everyone on the flip. I don't take care. When Andy first told me to join the Marines, I was like, you idiot. I got that reaction a lot. Back then, it seemed like America wasn't going to get in any more wars. Vietnam was still a recent memory. After boot camp, I went to communication school to learn to be a radioman. Then I had a few years of normal reserve experience. You know, like they tell you, one week in a month, two weeks in the summer. Then all of a sudden, it's the Gulf War, and I'm mailing him care packages with magazines and food, plus pantyhose to protect his M16 from the sand. We were running targeted missions along the border during the air campaign. That brought us into contact with the Iraqis on several occasions. I was attached to a brigade made up of Kuwaitis, Qataris, Moroccan, Saudis, all the Middle Eastern forces. I got commissioned, finished flight school, did a couple world tours as a Huey pilot. Ended up flying missions in Kosovo, and then 9-11 happened. I just received orders to be a flight instructor, so I spent the next three years teaching guys how to fly the Huey in combat by day and trying to find my way back to the operational forces by night. In 2004, I got orders back to the grunts in Iraq to do almost the same thing I'd done in the Gulf War. Fallujah was the biggest urban Marine battle since Way City in Vietnam. We had almost a division of Marines fighting over 2,000 bad guys in less than 15 square kilometers. And I was running all the air support. Every three to four minutes, we were dropping a bomb. I did two tours of Iraq and one in Afghanistan before I retired. Most of the stuff written by veterans seems to focus on one conflict, one deployment, or one battle. What makes Andy's story interesting is you get the full arc over a period of 25 years. 
you get an inside look at how the military goes from low-tech to high-tech and how the force changes dramatically after 9-11. When I meet people not in military circles, they always ask, well, what was it like? Well, here's the answer. 